You ever have those episodes where you just kind of have two minds about it? <laughs> the A plot and the B plot are actually pretty well connected. A connecting theme of uh, parenthood, for lack of a better way to put it. But I like the A plot. In fact, I would go so far as to say that I love the A plot. It has Rene Bergenois. It has very deep and serious themes, uh, re- not just related to parenthood, but related to life, existence, uh, consequence. And, of course, it has James Sloyan, who is awesome and is one of my favorite guest stars in uh, Star Trek history. Uh, seriously, every episode James Sloyan has been in, I've, I've ended up enjoying, to some extent or another. The man's amazing. I wish we had more of him. Then there's the B-plot. <clears throat> so... <laughs> Uh, hmm. Keiko's in this episode. I know that's a weird thing to comment on. Did you know it's one of her final appearances? We're about midway through season five, and in the next two and a half years, she will show up twice. So this is basically a goodbye episode to two characters, because we'll never see Mora again either. So Mora's gone. And even though, you know, he makes a comment of maybe I should be more of a part of your life from now on. But, I mean, screw that. That would just be insane. So, Mora's gone. Keiko's gone. Funnily enough, we actually won't even be seeing Shakar that often from now on either. So, all three characters are basically getting a weird form of a send-off in this episode. Um. <laughs> okay, Let, let's, let's talk about the B-plot first. For anybody who... I, I know there's some of you who don't like it when I get upset at episodes. that You tell me to take it easy or to not take it so seriously or whatever. Um, skip this part. <laughs> because I do take Star Trek seriously. I take most fiction seriously. In fact, I find the very idea of having to take fiction non-seriously to be kind of an insult. I, I don't understand the very idea of that. It's like, oh, it doesn't have to be good. It doesn't have to be well thought out. It doesn't have to be self-consistent. It's just a game slash book slash movie slash show, right? Who cares? I, I've never understood that. I, I Like, most of the times when someone else says something, I can at least understand their perspective. But I don't get that perspective at all. It's It's just alien to me. Why wouldn't I care? Why... If there is a fiction that I don't that I am I'm continuously ingesting, whether it's a show or a movie or a series of games, and I don't care about it, why am I watching it? Like if if it's if I don't care about it, then that means something's wrong here. Either it's not my thing, it's a coffee situation, or it's bad. So of course I care about it. And as I put out many times before, the reason I get so critical about Star Trek is because I love Star Trek. I wouldn't be critical about it if I didn't care. I would just shrug and stop watching it. The Bajoran birth method is stupid. I'm, I'm just going to say that as absolutely bluntly as I can. I do apologize. I, I can already hear the counter-argument because I've heard it before. Well, they're aliens. They don't function the way we do. Blah, blah, blah. But the problem is, no matter what you do with them in-universe, you have to always acknowledge that these ideas come from out-of-universe, from real life. So you always have to keep in mind the out-of-character perspective even when designing in-character lore, right? That, that That's a continuous thing throughout fiction. That's always been true, and you always have to keep that in mind. 
there are, I'm not going to go into examples, I can think of a few, where people just said, oh, well, in character it's this. Well, yeah, but out of character it's this. And it's going to bother people, or it's going to upset people, or it's going to look weird, or off, or silly, or dumb, or ridiculous, or whatever. Because out of character, it looks like some guy... I mean, Doctor Who's guilty of this all over the place. He's supposed to be terrifying. Well, then why is he waving a, a toupee around on, on an umbrella? <laughs> well, but that's not an umbrella or a toupee. Yeah, but that's an umbrella and a toupee. Like, no matter what you do, you always have to make sure to keep that real-life perspective, and you don't cross over lines. And in this case, they shake a rattle, hit a bell, and then she relaxes enough to have birth. That's stupid. I'm actually struggling to think of what kind of biological impetus would be necessary for a primarily humanoid being which operates on almost all of the same principles of existence that a human being does, except basically like the total opposite when it comes to birth. Anybody who studied birth at all, as far as human beings, although this is true with most biological beings on this planet, it's worth noting, but definitely with humans, birth beats the ever-living crap out of the mother. There's a reason m mothers dying in childbirth was so common as recently as a century ago. <laughs> you know? There's a reason that's a terrifying process to go through. So, <laughs> the very idea of just, like, relaxing, like, like I don't, I can't think of a non-crude way to compare that. I'm not going to do it. I'm sure some of you already know what I'm thinking about. But it's just, ah, and then it's done. What? So that's my first complaint. My second complaint is that the B-plot is stupid. My third complaint is that the B-plot is also pointless. But let's cover the stupid part first. Because what happens during the B-plot? The guys are stupid, incompetent, constantly doing a pissing contest with each other to the point where they're actually ignoring the woman they supposedly care about and actually getting in the way of things actually going correctly. It's so ham-fisted that it's material I would be embarrassed to see in a sitcom. There's actually a scene, no joke, if you haven't seen this episode recently, where they're, they're allowed to come back in, and then O'Brien says, after you, and Shakar says, no, after you, and O'Brien says, no, after you, getting more aggravated each time each one of them says something, and then finally she says, will you just get in here? You're going to miss it, because, God, childish man, I swear. That tone is there in every every presentation of the interaction between the men and the females. And then the guys kind of... They, 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 they three stooges their way through the door. That's actually a thing that happened in this episode. Because men are incompetent. <laughs> Comedy! I don't get the point. Unless they were trying to make a joke, I don't get the point. And I'm sorry, but I'm not laughing. <laughs> I... It, it would have been at least acceptable if we see a little bit of it. After all, there should be some rivalry between O'Brien and Shakar, for obvious reasons. But this level of just slapstick stupidity is actually insulting. That brings me to my third point. What the hell's the point of the B-plot? Now I know what you're thinking. Well, you're an idiot, Laura. The point of the B-plot is so she can have the baby. Yeah, okay, that's great. Why is it on camera? See, Kira, for those of you not aware, by this point in time, Nana Visitor had already given birth. So that's done and done. We no longer need to cover up the belly. She had a thing under her, under her shirt or dress or whatever at that point in time. I don't know. That's not really a dress. The outfit she had on. She had a thing on. And that was just to, to show that Kira Norris was still pregnant. Now, they could have basically done an off-camera thing if they didn't want to bring any attention to it at all. 
would have been a very easy and simple thing to do. Just have Kira make a comment about how weird she feels, you know, and her back's feeling a lot better, you know, because the extra weight isn't there. Just a little comment like that, and of course, she's just back into her normal uniform. If they just wanted to completely ignore the thing, that's something they could have done. But I know what you're thinking. Well, hang on. We spent on-camera time with this before. We're already invested in the O'Briens. I mean, we showed Molly's birth, right? Disaster? Well, good example, because disaster is exactly the point. See, Molly's birth and disaster being on camera had a purpose to it. Let me explain what I mean by that for a second. One of the biggest things that I tend to rail against in fiction is doing things without a reason. Threat of the week, um, you know, the, the concept of things being absolutely huge, you know, tens of thousands of years or trillions of galaxies or whatever. Um, the idea of there has to be romance, you know, the, fl the fling of the week, that kind of a thing. All of these points all actually are the same complaint, just expressed in different ways. And that complaint is there's no reason for it. If you're going to have romance in your show, make it matter. Make it mean something. Make it have some significance. If you're going to have an enemy of the week, make it relevant in some way to the characters or the plot or the setting or make some kind of interesting story about it. If you're going to have some gargantuan gap of time, make that gargantuan gap of time have a purpose other than being a huge amount of time. It's all about why you do something when it comes to fiction, at least when it comes to me. So Molly's birth back in Disaster was a plot point as well as a character-building moment. Character-building moment mostly for Worf, actually. But it was still a plot point because that added to the dilemmas. Molly's birth now became one of the conflicts they were overcoming during the disaster episode. And keeping in mind that thanks to other things that were happening during that episode, they could have just died if other people hadn't solved their, their dilemmas as well, right? So that served a purpose. You with me? What purpose does... Oh, God, I can't remember his name. I'll keep wanting to say Hideyoshi, but that's actually wrong. Oh, what's her name? Hang on, hang on. I don't know, I don't know his name. It's written down somewhere, I'm sure. Uh, I, I can't find it. <laughs> oh, whatever. The kid. The kid is... Uh, I, I really can't find his name. Whatever. The other, the other O'Brien child is born. But otherwise, what purpose does it serve? Is it a character-examining moment of Kira? No. In fact, Nana Visitor actually had to fight to add in a scene at the end where she admits that she, you know, is feeling absent and empty, having given birth and basically now being disconnected from the child. So that my reason for bringing that up is when they designed this episode, the effect this would have on Kira was not a part of the equation. Ergo, it's not about Kira. Is it about O'Brien and Shakar? Sure. Why not? Oh, yeah, by the way, I love how they couldn't get Shakar for the Federation, you know, Bejor joined the Federation. I love how they couldn't get Shakar for the other episode. I can't remember what it is right now off the top of my head. But they could bring him in for the needless baby delivery scene. I just... In an episode where they already had another guest star, no less, because they got James Sloyan on this one. <sighs> Anyways. So no, it's not about Shikar. They don't do anything for him. He is basically a cameo. It's not about O'Brien. Again, he's basically just the, the brunt of the humor. It's not about Keiko. She actually has very few lines in this episode. Uh, maybe it's about the random Bajoran woman. No. Maybe it's to help establish the nature of, like, like some world building, right? Well, this is how Bajorans give birth. Okay. That's the closest thing we've come to to a reason for showing this birth on camera. 
to show how Bajorans give birth. Would have been better, in my opinion, if that was the only thing you wanted to do, to just have that be a part of background lore. Which, it's worth noting, DS9's very good at background lore. Just little tidbits in the background that help flesh out the world. They do this all over the place. So they could have just said, you know, they could have had a conversation about, you know, what was it like giving birth? And then, and then maybe someone else jumping in and saying, like, oh, I remember when I had a child. It was horrible. God, this pain, weeks, and, and just, ah. Oh. And then Worf could come in and mention how Klingons give birth. And then Kira could give her parallels, like, this is how she gave birth. And Worf would say, like, that's just insane. You know, there's a way you could have done that, same setting building, in a singular scene rather than making an entire B-plot dedicated towards it. This is the dominant point of my complaint about the B-plot. It's pointless. Ignoring the fact that it's insulting and not funny to me, it's pointless. But I never like to complain or critique without giving my own thoughts on how you could do it. So, have the birth already have happened off camera. Boom. But keep the B-plot about Kira. Make the focus of the B-plot the impact this has had on Kira. To me, that just sounds like so much of a duh. Even more so because, spoiler alert, this will never be brought up again. Kira's significant... I, should, I shouldn't keep using the word never. Because every now and again I forget like one or two casual mentions like, like happened with the, the Defiant Cloak thing. That, that was one mention after that and I said never and I was wrong about that. Um, I've never forgotten about that. So, never in any significance... There we go. Is this going to be brought up again? This is never, in a significant way, going to be a character point for Kira. Well, I gave birth. All right, so tomorrow's TPS reports here. You know, it's, it's just, have this matter. Have her affected by this. Again, not a visitor herself was pushing for this idea, right? And it's so logical why. You don't need to be a mother to understand why a mother, because let's call it what it is, would feel devastated and lost and having issues at effectively the loss of her child. There could have gone directions with this. Lord knows they kept going in directions with how Kira was slotting in to the O'Brien's life in general leading up to this. Why not have Kira try to basically keep being a part of that life? And, you know, O'Brien and Keiko are un un uneasy about this and they're hesitant. And, of course, Keiko is understandable. She's actually defensive. She's got the mother instinct going on, and this is her child, but at the same time she's still sympathetic because she understands Kira likes her, so there's a little bit of pseudo-competitive sympathy going on there, and you could have a lot of character dynamic going there, and you could do something with it, and have this be a lasting impact on Kira, rather than just a shrug at the end of the episode. So that's my thought on that. Any of you guys have any thoughts? As ever, would love to hear your guys' thoughts and comments. <sighs> So, let's talk about the A-plot, which is much better. Although, this might be a short episode for those of you who are watching this with me and have never seen DS9 before, because we got some stuff to talk about in the spoiler section at the end here, so FYI. Anybody else ever find it weird that the Changeling just send out babies as scouts? Odo gives the statement, well, how better to judge a species than by how they treat the weak and defenseless? I can't be the only one who can think of, God, I don't know, a dozen ways I could go really bad and end in basically inf infanticide, right? I don't know how to say that word. The death of the baby. <laughs> Doesn't that sound awful? And now you might think, well, the founders are awful. Yeah, no, that's true. They absolutely are. But they care about other changelings, other founders. So why would they send one of their own out to do this? Now, I know this is canon, but it makes absolutely no sense to me. 
The only way this would make sense is if they were basically policing them the whole time. Like, basically, if a baby goes out and then another changeling goes out with the baby to keep full watch on that. That would make perfect sense. The safety net, in other words. It would also give them immediate intel on the situation. But, whatever. I mean, granted, well... So, Odo gives this speech. Now, René Bergenois is an awesome character actor. It's funny how much the man can do with his face given the makeup he has to wear. But all of it boils down to a simple concept, which is something I've heard of many times in real life. It boils down to, I will not make the mistakes my parents did with you. I'm going to do better. Now, what's funny is I've heard that many times uh, from multiple of the same generation. In other words, you know, grandparents, parents, children. I've, I've heard that. And it never seems to quite work out for some reason. It's like we keep having to rediscover the same lessons each generation, you know? It's like, oh, that's how that works. That makes sense, though, in an absolutely horrible way, because, well, to be completely blunt, there are certain things that your imagination can't prepare you for. It is one thing to imagine a thing. It is another thing to actually be interacting with it personally. You can imagine right now what it would be like to be on a floating continent and just, ah, but then a T-Rex starts coming after you. So, you know, what do you do, right? Like, we, we can do that. We have that capacity. It's part of being human. But if you are actually there, and an actual T-Rex starts chomping after you, the way you're going to react is probably going to be different than what you envisioned. I know that's a strange comparison, but you get my point. I'll, I'll go and use a personal point. I have actually taken care of a child uh, full-time. Day, night, long, long hours, not a lot of sleep. And, you know, done that for multiple months. And it was a nice, long, hard, arduous, terrible, tr just best part of my life. Um, and I can't explain that to anyone else. And I've, I've discovered since then that anyone else who's had a child is just, just kind of starts nodding when I start talking about it. And everyone else just kind of goes, ah, oh, it sounds terrible. Because, they, you know, you just don't understand until you're there. Which leads me to Odo. Because that's what Odo goes through in this episode. Odo... <laughs> Odo insists that everything Mora did was wrong and horrible. He's probably gotten over some of the more severe bitterness. He's not at the point of actually wanting to physically attack Mora. But he clearly holds just a revilement towards him. And excuse me for skipping ahead in the episode, but there's a moment where the, the changeling starts to react, and he's just... And there's just this smile. And Mora's like, oh, I smiled the same way when I saw you do that for the first time. And for the first time, there is a real connecting point between Odo and Mora. It is the connecting point of parenthood, like I just said. They now both understand and have experienced it for real. And thus, they now both comprehend, genosco, if you will, what they're thinking on this matter, rather than simply being able to imagine it. And you'll notice that Odo is much, much more pleasant towards Mora from that moment onwards, to the point where he actually starts embracing him, actually eff effectively accepts him into his family, and gets to the point where, you know, maybe now you can be a part of my life from now on. We'll never hear from him again, because screw continuity, but nevertheless, you can see Odo going through this journey. He understands now, through personal experience. I like that. I also like how Odo's speechifying, as we go throughout the episode, and as he talks to this thing, and I'm going to keep referring it to a thing for reasons I'll get to in the spoiler section. He keeps talking to this thing, and you get... It's, it's actually a cool way to show what being a shapeshifter has always meant to Odo. Or I shouldn't say has always, but currently means to Odo. What it, what it feels like. You know, you could say, okay, you are a such and such. What does that mean? Oh, it doesn't mean anything. But when you're really in the moment, <clears throat> you could tell Odo has 
had a legitimate pride in being a shapeshifter, that it was a joy to him. Now, this is not the first time we've seen this. When he first encountered the, the female shapeshifter, the, the evil one, <laughs> capital E, capital O, the evil one, um, he, you know, he, he expressed just simple joy at being able to, to morph and change and alter. And, and when you know, Kira came into his room and when Loxana came into his room, both instances, he talked about just the joy of shapeshifting. And now we get to hear him basically expound on it. And thankfully, René Bergenois is talented enough with his voice to get across the sense of wonderment and awe in something that should be an everyday thing to him. And that's a rare, that's a rare trick right there. It gets across the idea that Odo either really loved being a shapeshifter all the time or didn't realize he loved being a shapeshifter all the time and now that he is absent it is now aware of what he is missing this would also help to tie in for the end where he just has this this expression of exultant joy which immediately of course descends into sorrow given what happened it's it's some really great character acting from a you can see how i'm the exact opposite opinion of the a plot here um so Mora comes in, and one of the things I like about Mora is he adds a little bit layer of practicality to the situation. I've always liked to think that Odo got his more practical bent from Mora. Because it's not like Mora doesn't care about the intangible. It's not like he doesn't care about the, the, the social aspect of things or whatever. Odo does too. It's also worth noting. But Mora also tends to think in terms of facts, in terms of scientific process and method, in terms of repeatable results. And thus, Mora brings a very interesting element to the equation that Odo effectively lacks. Because Odo, for all of his you know, ability to deduce his way through a situation, has no real scientific tint to him. And I don't mean scientific in the way it's usually meant. I mean in the more literal sense of the word. Look at something. Test it. Repeat it. Repeat it. Repeat it. Look at something. Test it. Repeat it. Repeat it. Repeat it. That's what I mean when I say scientific. And so Mora brings that essential element to the things. And what's interesting is the two bounce off each other quite a bit. Mora, I actually didn't remember this, but upon rewatch, Mora is actually surprisingly polite. He is passive-aggressive, and I'm not going to try and argue that, and Odo is very passive-aggressive. But Mora, nevertheless, continuously bows in respect to him. It's like, all right. We'll do it your way. Quite the contrary. I'm actually very fascinated to see your methodology. Let's do it. And then a week passes. I hate it when weekly shows do that, by the way. We already have a... There's, there's an unwritten rule uh, when it comes to shows, especially like Star Trek, but this is true for television in general, that a year of television is a year in universe. That never really lines up, though. People who are much geekier and more determined than me have actually sat down and figured out how long each season has actually been. And it's, it's usually not really a year. Sometimes it's under. Sometimes it's way over. But a week passes during a montage. And then we get into a really interesting part. See, Odo mentions to the thing... Again, being passive-aggressive. Oh, he tried to force me into being a cube, and it was awful. And, that, and yet, even while he is trying to grouse about Mora to the, to the thing, he cannot help but admit how much he enjoyed being a cube. That it was a fascinating new experience, all those right angles. Excuse me a moment. And how much it was like, it was a good thing, right? This kind of brings that theme of parenthood back into the forefront of the narrative. Because, there's no nice way to say this, a child does not know what's best for himself or herself. 
It's, I, don't want to, I didn't want to say itself, so I stumbled over that word. A child does not know what is best for their self, okay? Themself? God, I don't know. That's just life, okay? A four-year-old, trust me, does, just simply does not have the experience or the cognitive capabilities to decide their own fate. Now, they can decide some things. You, you shouldn't baby them. This is my opinion at this point. You shouldn't baby them. You shouldn't put them into a giant thing of saran wrap and, bu- and bubble wrap and make sure that nothing ever hurts them. But... But you do need to take care of them and make decisions for them because they're just not there yet. Now, when exactly any given person gets to the point where they can make decisions on their own, that's debatable. I would argue very strongly that there are several people who never reach that point because I have met people who are older than me who I would argue are still not at that point. But the point is you have to give this kind of motivation to a child to do something. Let me put it to you in a slightly different way. Let's imagine for a moment that you are content, okay? Now, you don't know uh, joy. You don't know happiness. You don't know fear or grief or sorrow or pain. You are content. That is functionally how they describe the gelatinous state. And as Mora points out, I think twice, but I know once for certain, he says you'd still be in a, a beaker somewhere labeled unknown sample because the general idea is that a, a you know, a child changeling has no motivation to do other thing, anything other than being, you know, a blob. It's the same general concept with a, with a human child. A human child, now it doesn't quite parallel one-to-one because a human child will have plenty of things to be upset about. But the point is, a human child will not understand concepts like joy or happiness or contentment or success or, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, um... You know, feeling pleased about having accomplished something, you know, none of that will really be in a child's mind until they, it's been introduced to them, until they've been able to acclimate to that. And the harsh reality of an imperfect reality is that that means pain and failure. Now, not too much pain, I'm not too, you know, obviously, but that's exactly what happens, right? They have to introduce this st- shock to the child to the thing, in order to encourage it to move. And thus, it learns to move. This is, it is functionally the first time we've seen this thing move, uh, possibly ever. So it learns how to shift a little bit. And now that concept's been introduced to it. Because it has been introduced motivation. Now, this is a form of negative re- reinforcement. It is worth noting. But at the same time, well, as much as I don't like negative reinforcement, it does have its place and purpose, especially when it comes to science fiction. So they introduce this motive, and that is so much of the, of the nature of Mora and Oda's work. And what I love most about it is Oda wants to be super hands-off. Mora, well, I don't want to say Mora wants to be super hands-on, but it would be more accurate to say that Mora brings experience from having been super hands-on, right? As he points out, I didn't even know you were sentient for the longest time. I just thought I was studying some sample thing. As soon as I found out you were sentient, I was under enormous pressure. Funny, by the way, how the episode very unsubtly compares the Cardassian Union to Starfleet, by the way. Not in a more, you know, Starfleet is evil thing, more of a, well, the organization that is in charge is demanding results. And so we see that this merger of these two methods actually seems to be working pretty well. Odo has managed to successfully connect with this thing, and... With the inclusion of Mora's efforts, the connection is now actually producing results. It's a nice 
well, it's a nice moderation perspective, if I'm just being honest. We'll use both methods carefully and precisely, and we'll get something out of it. And I like that. I also love, there's this really great scene where the two of them are walking off to Odo's uh, room. It's, it's actually a security room. And the two are just gushing. There's just a really infectious joy in both of them at how much this matters. And, and Mora's, of course, still thinking from a scientific perspective, thinking about introducing new types of life, you know, fungi or algae or, or amoeba, and then eventually you might even be able to introduce invertebrae to, the, to this thing. And then Odo's just like, yeah, this is great. And then there's a really wonderful scene that shows just how much Odo is Mora's son. Because Mora understands Odo. All these things I've been telling you for the last, like, ten episodes. We've had a lot of Odo-centric episodes. And I keep telling you this stuff that you already know, so please forgive me. About how Odo is private. How Odo is prideful. How Odo has his, his mask that he always has to have on, right? That, that rigidity to him. And yet, Mora understands that. And he says, I know this hurts you. I know you're a private person. I know you don't want to talk about this sort of thing. I'm, I'm, and he just basically excuses himself. And it is Odo who has to stop and realize that a lot of who he is is because of Mora. And that Mora obviously does really care about him. And there's just an amazing humanness. This is, this is Rene Echeverri at his best right here, in my opinion. Because you could just, he has a, he, I've told you about fingerprints for authors before. He has a fingerprint for managing to tell a complex human interaction. Something that can't be described by a word or a sentence. And that's Mora and Odo right there. And there's so much of that just plays out as the two interact with each other. And it ends with this bit where Odo says, wait, wait, wait. As he realizes he's a, Mora is just going to willingly and of his own volition leave Odo to his solitude. And Odo in that moment just suddenly realizes he doesn't want that. He doesn't want to push Mora away. He has. For a lot of his life, he's resented him, he's been bitter towards him, but over the last week plus, he has grown to understand and, and comprehend this man in ways he never thought possible. Again, they have a real connection now of actual true understanding. And so he reaches out to him. Champagne! We're celebrating. And Mora's face, there's just this relief of just, my son wants me in his life again. I'm actually tearing up just a little bit thinking about it, because it's a very powerful scene. And it is very well acted, very well written, and it's awesome. And then, and then, of course, it wouldn't be a good Odo episode without a quark moment, right? So Odo goes into quarks, and uh, I wasn't kidding. <laughs> Odo goes into quarks, and he's talking to him, and, you know, quark is just suspicious, suspicious, suspicious. But as it keeps going, quark slowly realizes Odo is legitimately happy. And you notice quark is just happy for him. He just kind of is like... Fill me up, you know? This is great. This is great. And I said before, Cork is both a romantic and someone who does, you know, care about child. You know, his comments about Nog certainly get that across. So, you know, you can kind of see there's now just the beginnings of more of a bonding moment between the two. And then, and then he gets the medical call. And we know where that's going immediately. There's a lot of quiet moments in this episode, but one of the ones that stuck, sticks out to me most is at the beginning of the episode, Odo didn't even want Mora informed about this thing, right? He did not even want Mora to be involved. By the end of the episode, he is willing to let Mora and Bashir be in a room with this thing without him. That's how much his level of trust has raised over the course of this episode. So, 
It, it morphs into his hands. He gains his shape-shifting back. Denouement, the end. Spoilers. I, I cannot talk about anything else unless I bring spoilers into this, okay? So, um, future me, who's editing this? Spoilers. Right up there. Eh, maybe a bit lower. It's your last chance. Okay, so we have to talk about the changeling. Not Odo. Not, not the baby. The one that's walking around as Bashir right now. Because that's why this is a spoiler. Um, I want to get a couple of facts out here. I've been kind of dancing around this topic a little bit, but we have to bring it up for this episode because... I'm sorry, there's no way in hell a changeling would allow a baby changeling to die. That's just infeasible. Especially since there's a reasonably good chance that a changeling would be able to do something about that. We know for a fact that they can help heal other changelings simply by merging with them. And you can't tell me the Bashir changeling wouldn't have had plenty of opportunity to do that. Now, all of this is predicated on the idea that this is the Bashir Changeling. Well, there are two pieces of evidence that indicate that that is true. The first is the obvious one, the uniform. But the second is that, and I did do some research on this, uh, Ronald D. Moore did actually specifically answer this question before, and he flat out said the changeover happened prior to the episode The Ra Rapture. That was when they, they had decided that happened. So, officially, and based on what we see on camera, and both of these coincide, this is the Changeling Bashir. Now, it is worth noting <clears throat> that the directors and writers did not inform Alexander Siddig about this. He would not be informed until uh, in Purgatory Shadow. I wrote, yeah, in Purgatory Shadow is when Alexander Siddig was actually informed of the fact that he had been a changeling for the last several episodes, which means he, the actor is portraying Bashir. <laughs> so there's no hints there. Is what I'm trying to say. The actor literally doesn't know the performance he's supposed to give. Although it is funny, because Bashir certainly seems to find certain things interesting in this episode, like the suffering of Odo. But anyways. So, okay, why do I bring all this up? I don't think it was a baby changeling. I, I can't. I cannot envision a circumstance in which it's a baby changeling. Now, there's plenty of other possible explanations here. Really, there are. But at the same time, the why comes into this. There has to be a why. You can't just say, oh, well, it was, you know, the will of the force. No, you have to have a reason. You have to have something more concrete defining that. I do have my own theories, but before I go any further, I'd just like to say that I know all of you are lunging to your comment section to say, no, you're stupid and you're an idiot, uh, but I really cannot believe any environment in which a changeling is willing to allow another changeling, especially a baby changeling, to die when it had the power to do something about that. I can't envision it. That's that's so utterly contradictory to everything we've ever learned about the changelings. Especially the fact that this Bashir changeling, again, is specifically a founder changeling. Which I point out because, as we know, there's other changelings out there, like Odo and like... Uh, I can't think of his name right now. Lar? Was that his name? You know what I'm talking about. The, the other guy played by Hertzler. Anyways. <clears throat> so, what is this thing, then? Well... Honestly, my biggest and most obvious theory is, is it's exactly what it looks like. It is something that is changeling-like. You know, we saw that little thing way back in season one or two or whatever. So we know that there are changeling devices that can exist that have similar properties to them. And it was something that was pretty much specifically designed to restore Odo to his full state. That's the basics of the theory. Now, 
you might ask you, well, why did my why did you decide to do that? Why would they decide to do that? The most obvious theory is that they had decided he had suffered enough. Um, now, that being stated, it is worth noting it's only been twelve episodes. Like I always felt Oda was a solid for a lot longer than that. And if I could just be completely blunt, while I do like how DS9 shows consequences, and that is a good thing, um, I kind of wish this one lasted longer. In fact, if I'm honest, I wish this one lasted a lot longer. In fact, if, if just counting out personally, I would have had this one last until, since we're in spoilers, I can talk about this, the Dominion occupation of DS9. I would have had the female changeling specifically infuse this back into her, or I would have gone with the other story idea, which is what I'm about to mention. Now, this is pure wild theory crafting, okay? I'm just going to admit that. Let's, because there's another part of this spoiler section I want to talk about. But let's just admit that this is not true. But I like the idea that there are founders who don't agree with other founders, basically. We, we all talk about the Great Link, but we all hear that from the evil one, from the female changeling, right? And she's pretty much the point man for the founder. It, it just makes a lot of sense to me that there would be founders that don't agree with the other founders. Now, I don't mean like on a full political forum kind of a way, but more of a, Odo's one of us. We, we cannot deny him his divine right to be a god. So it would still be a founder mentality to want to restore Odo's shape-shifting abilities. Just, you know, some founders disagreed with the method. So, in other words, the basis of this theory is that the Bashir changeling actually introduced this device, this thing, this is why I kept calling it it, this thing, so that Quark would get a hold of it, Quark would sell it to Odo, I mean, this isn't even that complicated, really. Then, he, then Odo spends a few weeks interacting with it. It finally dies, and as Odo is you know, interacting with it, it absorbs into him and heals him. Bam. Plot done. You could, If you want to add more complexity to this, you could also add the idea that the Bashir changeling, was, you know, when he was finally called in to, to uh, first to get rid of the radiation, and then second to try and save the thing, both times he was doing stuff to basically get it ready to go to be exactly set up to restore Odo. Right? If I'm being honest, I actually kind of have always thought this was true to some extent or another. Even when I first saw this episode, I actually thought that this was never a baby changeling. But instead that it was a, a thing, a changeling medicine, I don't know what else to call it, that had been introduced deliberately so that Odo could be cured. Now, I didn't know about the Bashir changeling at the time, but that always made more sense to me than a dying changeling who doesn't even have the ability to communicate somehow merges with Odo's physical form and restores him to changeling status. That has never made sense to me. And granted, I know the changelings are basically magic. We've discussed this before. But still, what do you guys think? Now, I, I said there was one other thing to talk about, and that's the downside of backloaded storytelling. Now, I have actually been praising backloaded storytelling a lot, especially if you've been paying attention, I hope you have, because there's a lot of valuable stuff you can do with it. It's a very dynamic, it's a very adaptable thing, and you can kind of build as you go. But the biggest downside to backloaded storytelling is you're going to run into retcons or plot holes, things that don't make sense. There's actually been analyses done about this exact point I'm bringing up the nature of the Bashir Changeling, and the things that the Bashir Changeling has done, the contradicting timeline about when and where, and basically a lot of it doesn't line up. And that's because they didn't plan this out in advance. That's just truth. None of that is speculative. They th this is all fact. And that's just 
the nature of backloaded storytelling. You look at that and you say, oh, because by all accounts, from what we understand, I wasn't able to find a concrete source in this, so I'm going to admit that. But on all accounts that I haven't been able to see, the writers decided much later, oh, let's make Bashir the Changeling. In fact, originally, given the fact that the story arc that became in Purgatory's Shadow and By Inferno's Light came out of an Eddington story arc, you can kind of see how they just kind of sort of did what they always do. They adapted their existing story ideas and grafted new concepts onto them and made something great out of it. But because they didn't plan it, all of a sudden they had this twist which doesn't quite make sense. This is, this is the danger of it. This is the danger of backloaded storytelling. Oh, right, that contradicts that earlier thing I said. Oops. And there's no real way around that, right? I mean, sometimes you can retcon things and make it make sense, and then sometimes you just kind of, well, you throw up your hands and say, screw it, because this is Star Trek after all. Let's be honest, the amount of time Star Trek contradicts itself is through the roof. <laughs> but I point this out because I know this sounds strange, but in my opinion, a lot of these episodes kind of like a Bashir reveal we'll have later, consequently. Yeah, another Bashir reveal. Um, I actually think a lot of these events make a degree of sense, if you assume this. The Bashir who was able to save Odo, or, or excuse me, Cisco's life, right? Well, I mean, I have no doubt that a changeling would have the kind of knowledge and capacity to do that. And even though you might say, why would a founder save Cisco's life? Remember, Cisco's small potatoes. That changeling is there for much bigger impact. This is, this is the cost thing that I keep referring to. You know, the only thing that will prevent an agent... Okay, let me, let me rewind a second. You can never prove if someone is truly loyal in an intelligence organization, ever. Because the only thing that determines how far they're willing to go is how worth it it is to them. If you are someone who has to torture and hurt and kill and murder your own people and, and rip off your own hand and do all this horrible stuff... And in so doing, you will save the lives of every, everyone you know, your whole planet or your whole world or your whole system or your whole galaxy or whatever, then that is worth it. So you will do all those horrible things to prove your loyalty. It's all a lie. You get my point? So the idea of the Bashir changeling being willing to do this surgery on Cisco, being willing to you know help, help Kira with her birth, and there's other things. I'm not going to cover all of them, but all the things that that changeling does canonically throughout these episodes makes sense to me because he's playing for bigger stakes. He's trying to do much bigger things with regards to the wormhole and the system in general, and he doesn't give a crap about Cisco. Now, that may be to his own detriment because of ego or whatever, but Cisco is just small potatoes compared to what they're playing for. So I actually personally think it kind of works, even though it is, let's be honest, a plot hole. What do you guys think? As ever, appreciate your time and your thoughts. See you next time, guys.